Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Beat, and you're listening today to Barbara Ulrich. Barbara and her partner run an ecotourism business in Gardner, Montana, called Wild Bear Adventures, where they provide visitors a window into the natural world of Greater Yellowstone and the magic of species such as grizzly bears and bison and wolves. Barbara, can you share some of your first experiences with wild animals that got you hooked? Sure. You know, it it actually um, came from uh, my years as a mother. I brought my my then 10-year-old twins up to Yellowstone right about the time that the wolf reintroduction discussion was going on. And I thought, what a great opportunity for them not only to focus on a particular species and learn about them, but also to learn about and participate in the public process. So, um, you know, we went to a lot of ranger talks, we learned what we could about wolves, and then they wrote letters um, encouraging um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife to, to go ahead with the reintroduction. So it was, that was the birth of my wow. uh, interest in wolves and other, other critters as the years went by. So you were here or you witnessed that reintroduction when it occurred? Well, I was... Um, I was located down in Colorado um, where I had lived for 30 years and worked. And, um, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to actually be on the ground when they brought wolves into Yellowstone. But I certainly was uh, coming up to Yellowstone frequently so that I was here during those first years and saw my first wolf in the Lamar Valley in, I think it was 98. By the time I actually saw the first wolf, it was a member of the Druid Peak Pack and really a pivotal moment in my own life um, to see that happen. Yeah, that was a sort of a badass pack, too. <laughs> it was. They were around for a long time, and it was certainly fun. Uh, I have, have had a lot of experience with them, not only you know, seeing those those first wolves come in, but also um, ultimately to come up here and teach with um, Yellowstone Association and bring visitors uh, who came to Yellowstone to, to see wolves, bring them out into the valley and to discuss the history of the Druid Peak Pack and, you know, maybe see some of the members of the pack uh, while, while they were here in Yellowstone. And so they, they were around for a long time and, and really pivotal focus of uh, the wolf reintroduction here in Yellowstone. Yeah. Well, just to continue on that theme, um, you're a guide and interpreter, and, uh, and the Yellowstone landscape is vast and subtle and difficult for a casual visitor to grasp its ecological complexities. As a guide and an educator, what, what do you think are some of the best ways to share this landscape and wildlife with newcomers? And maybe you can share an anecdote or two along those lines. Okay. Uh, well, that is a challenge, the, the largeness of, uh, of the landscape. And, and I think a mistake for people who come here and, and think that, you know, they're going to do Yellowstone uh, this, on this summer visit or whatever because, uh, because it is so diverse. And I find as a guide, um, you know, frequently I, I have people just for one day, like an eight-hour tour, and 
to be able to give them a glimpse into some of the subtleties of the landscape, I find it absolutely imperative to get off the beaten path, even if it's just for a half an hour or a little hike, you know, depending upon their ability um, to get off the road, away from road noise, away from other people, and, and look at something that's really um, maybe a finer point in the landscape, or you might observe a small a small animal that that's scared away by by all of the activity along the roadside. So, um, you know, we have certain kind of short little places that that we have our, our secret little hikes off the off the road. And if we can get folks um, up and away, I I can't predict what we'll see, but you know, you might see a bluebird, or you might see um, a pine marten or a little squirrel. And then that just seems to stimulate conversation where you can talk a little bit about, you know, how, how that particular animal fits into the larger picture. Or you might see willows or, you know, something, uh, vegetation, um, so that you can just really focus on how complex this ecosystem really is. And that, you know, the wolves and the bears are, are the draw. That's what people come up here. They want to see the wolves and the bears. But to understand that those, that those animals are part of a much more intricate and complex system, that's, that's the real meat of, um, of what we're trying to um, help people understand and enlighten them about that. That's great. So what do you think have been perhaps a few of your major challenges with your experience with ecotourism? Um, you know, I think, um, as you know, I've become a member of the community here. So, you know, I ultimately moved out of the Denver metro area and I've retired up here and I own a home. I'm part of this small community and it's a diverse community of human beings. You know, we have obviously a lot of people who, who live near the park are involved in some way in the park, but we also have people here who are involved in, other other components of this wild landscape. You know, we have ranchers and we have um, outfitters and, uh, you know, folks who, who really, I think, just go about their lives and, and don't pay a whole lot of attention to, you know, some of the, the hot-button issues um, around here. Um, and I think as a member of the community, I've found that it's been perhaps frustrating at times, feeling that, because I identify as a, um, or a wildlife watcher or a member of the, con- the conservation community, that I am somehow misunderstood, that my intentions are, are perhaps misunderstood. And, and I found that, um, you know, developing a sort of a sensitivity to what other people, what their needs are with respect to um, the, the wildlife itself it has been really very important and and i've really tried to um i've tried to expand my mind and and think think from their perspective from time to time um and, and i have found that to be very very helpful and and i think when other people see you do that or feel that you're doing that or you're trying to trying to understand where they're coming from that 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 has been helpful in um and coming together as a community and addressing some really very um, important issues um, about wildlife and living with them and how to manage them in the future. 
Yeah, so Barbara, you've now been part of the community around Gardner, which is right on the doorstep of Yellowstone Park, for quite some time. And you've had a chance to watch uh, and be part of uh, heated, sometimes heated discussions on things like uh, species like bison and wolves, which are protected inside the park but not outside. And you've talked about being part of the community, but have you also seen the debate in the community change over time? Um, I have. I, I've only been here for ten years, um, but I think there has been a lot of um, a lot of change. Um, and, and I can speak from the perspective of having been um, and still am very involved in Bear Creek Council, which is a small grassroots community group here in Gardner, and one that I had the privilege to lead for a couple of years. Um, and I I have seen as um, kind of as the the topics that come across, um, you know, the headlines of the newspaper um, around here change that um, that people people have, I believe, um, expanded somewhat their uh, approach to how how we think about some of these issues. And you know, I guess in particular, um, I've had I've, I've had experience with. Um, um, with wolves uh, coming off of the endangered species list, and now they're being um, uh, managed by the state of Montana. And in particular, I'm talking about state of Montana. They're, you know, they are also being managed in other states differently. And um, you know, I was able, really very fortunate, to be able to have a, a private meeting with uh, Governor Bullock when I was president of Bear Creek Council. And um, you know, what I what I think is very useful in those uh, situations is to to not be ad, so adamant for your cause that you can't understand uh, the needs the needs of other uh, stakeholders. You know, our our request has always been to Fish, Wildlife, and Parks here in Montana that people who are in the conservation community, um, ecotourism, people who, who very much have their, uh, their livelihood involved in um, wolves being on the landscape here in Montana, near and in the northern part of, of the park, and helping, um, helping people understand how hunting near the park could really very negatively impact um, those activities. Um, you know, I, I have found that other stakeholder groups are are listening now. Um, they're beginning to understand that, you know, what they do and what their needs are can negatively impact others. And so I, I think that's tremendous progress. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't those who, um, you know, kind of have, will just adhere to that old sort of uh, mentality that, you know, I think the same way my grandfather did. It was good enough for him, so it's good enough for me. And they're just, they're just not willing to listen. But I would say that there are a good number of people who truly are willing to listen and understand um, times are changing and needs are changing, theirs and other people's. And I, I think that's a tremendous um, plus, and it gives me a lot of hope for the future. That's great. Well, one of the components of the change that we're all seeing here in the Northern Rockies um, is the economics. Um, and as you know better than anyone, the economic drivers of the Northern Rockies are no longer exploitative industries as they were, uh, such as logging and mining. But as you, um, as you say and as you make your living, but tourism and people moving to this region for the abundance of wildlife and wilderness 
and parks and such. Can you talk about your view of this transition and what it may mean to the future of wildlife, grizzly bears, wolves, bison, other species? Yeah, that's a, that's a conundrum. Um, you know, it's it, that sort of expression that you can just love something to death, I think. Um, well, it, you know, our, um, our economy here in, uh, in sort of north of the park in this part of uh, Montana, the Paradise Valley, Gardner, Emigrant, uh, even up into Bozeman is, I think, very much driven by, uh, by tourism. Um, you know, we want... We've, we've seen numbers increase dramatically of, uh, of tourists that come just to see Yellowstone. And, you know, they're usually on a, a, a longer expedition that might include uh, Glacier and some of the other parks in the West. And, you know, as I take people into the park, and as I mentioned, you know, wanting to get off the beaten path a little bit, um, it, it is very concerning, the number of people that are coming and the impact that they're having on um, on the park resources, and you know that's that's a whole um, a whole part of of planning that really really needs to be addressed, um, not just by the park service, but by, by our community. You know, how do we handle these um, these folks that want to come and have every right to come, and to give them a, a quality experience? And and I think it's a tremendous challenge for us. Um, you know, no, I've, I have come here and, and I've purchased property. I purchased a property that was built in the 80s, but nonetheless, you know, there are people who come and they want to build or um, there's a competition between people who want to live here and people who want to rent here during the summer. And so housing has always been an issue. And, you know, I, I, I don't think there are any really easy answers about it. I, I think we really have to understand ultimately what our impact on the ecosystem is and understand that very clearly, uh, that there's a point beyond which uh, we could impact it such that the animals won't be around and it will, it will ultimately put us all out of business. So it's, it's a really key development and um, visitor use. How we use the landscape is, um, is a huge challenge that we better give a lot of thought to for the future. But as you... But it's very clear that uh, the economic drivers of Gardner and communities around Yellowstone are tourism, and it is the goose that lays the golden egg in a positive way. Um, and it seems to me that that itself is changing the debate about protection of the park and the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, I think... Um, I think people who come here, well, one of, um, one of the advantages I think that um, anyone has in making an argument about any topic is to be really well-informed. And as part of um, our work at Bear Creek Council or, or even when I'm dealing with uh, folks who come here and are on a, a wild bear adventure, that having the, the most recent information um, that's available um, putting forth education about those uh, those things is is really important. And and what I'm getting at is that when we start looking at the economic drivers here, when we start realizing that in Mon- people come to Montana to bird watch, and there are far more people who come here to watch birds than there are people who come here to hunt, for example. And 
we need to understand that and know those statistics and be plugged into that information because that's the sort of baseline information that we need to make the kinds of decisions that we need to make for planning for our future. And so if we continue to um, have our community focused on sort of a, a, a dying industry, and I, I think people will always come here to hunt, they'll always come here to fish, but we have this whole new ecotourism um, component of people who are interested in learning about um, ecosystems, about how they work, uh, about the large players. They, they, they want, they may be city dwellers, they, they may, you know, have to exist in the suburbs of, of some large uh, city in the United States or outside of the United States, and they come here to be able to experience something that's very different and that they perceive it as very precious. And so for us to be able to preserve that for them is very, very important, um, not only as, you know, something that's sort of an intrinsic human need to be in touch with wilderness, but also for our, our economy to be able to provide that experience for people. Because if we can't do that, I don't know where else any, anyone is going to go to experience that. So, Barbara, speaking of your meetings with the governor and such, you've been involved in efforts to change state wildlife management policy outside the park. And you've had some really significant success, reducing the number of wolves getting hunted on the border of the park and in other ways. Can you share your thoughts on what you think are some of the key ingredients of your successes? Sure. Um, you know, we really, we really have at uh, Bear Creek Council, again, is this, this group that I've uh, worked through. And... Um, I, you know, I think our success has been tied um, largely to persistence. Um, I actually remember when I, when I met the governor, you know, I said, you know, I was so pleased to meet him. And I said, and, and this won't be the last time you'll be hearing from me. And clearly um, it was not. And um, so we, we attend meetings and we, you know, we speak when there's public comment and we uh, keep ourselves up to date on what's going on and, and what other what other groups um, who are pro or con are focusing on. And, um, you know, largely, I would say, you know, our, our success has been because we have been we have been very reasonable in our requests. Uh, we, we're very fortunate to have a lot of scientists in our community and in our um, in Bear Creek Council who, you know, they're, they're up on the latest papers and they understand, you know, wolf um, pack dynamics. And so we have a lot of insight that way. So we can really support our arguments with, with good science, the most recent science. And, and that's been very helpful too. So, um, Always, though, I feel we've been reasonable in our requests, and specifically um, one of our biggest successes was that we were able to get Fish, Wildlife, and Parks to agree to limit the number of wolves that can be taken out of two hunting units that exist just north of the Yellowstone National Park. And further, we were able to have um, limits on the number of wolves that each hunter could take. And in Montana, each hunter can take five wolves, but here in these two um, hunting units north of the park, they're only allowed to take one wolf. And the reason we were able to, to get that through, I believe, largely, is because we were able to make the argument about the impact that taking more than one wolf at a time from a pack that is probably frequenting both the park and the northern part uh, or the northern range here outside of the park um, is absolutely devastating. And 
Um, and that's not an emotional argument. That is a scientific argument. And so we were able to um, back up our request with, you know, the latest information. And, and, I, and I think that sells very well, that we're not, you know, we're not going in and saying, we love wolves and we don't want anybody to kill them. And, and we may. Um, that may be the case. But what we're saying is this is what we know about wolves. This is what we know is good. And this is what we know is bad. And so we're just asking you to use reason and to understand that there are a lot of people here in our community who are going to be negatively impacted if the wolves disappear in the northern range of the park. Um, right. And, and that, that, in a nutshell, has been our, um, our measure of success, I believe. That's great. So, Barbara, you've gone back to graduate school in midlife and are now studying climate change with a paleoecologist through the lens of microbes that show up in bison poop. Can you share a little bit about your decision to do that and what you're hoping to find in your research? Sure. Um, it is an unusual thing to do um, as part of your retirement plan. And, and I have to tell you, it was not, uh, it was not really a plan that I had. Most of, most of all of this that's happened since my retirement has, has not been a plan that I ever had. Um, but I do know opportunity when I see it. And um, there's a, a, a wonderful researcher at Montana State University. Um, uh, her name is Kathy Whitlock, uh, and I've, uh, I've heard of her over the years and I was following some of her research. I know she's very active here in the Yellowstone area, and I had an opportunity to take a class with her. And um, so I took advantage of that, and it was kind of like I was hooked. <laughs> I was definitely hooked. Um, I love learning. I, I've always loved to learn things, and to be back in the university environment was just, you know, it was just feeding my soul. And I thought, well, you know, what better thing to do um, as a gift to myself than to, you know, continue to take classes and ultimately um, was in discussion with Kathy and, and said, you know, what can I, what can I do? I, you know, I'd love, to, I'd love to do some kind of research. And, you know, I know I'm not, um, I'm not the typical student, but, you know, tell me what the possibilities are. And, and so, you know, honestly, if... Um, if, if you have an interest and you're willing to, to put in the time and effort, the possibilities are really quite endless, I found out. So I've um, zeroed in on a rather obscure research topic, and it does involve bison poop, um, which we have quite a bit of here in the, uh, in the Yellowstone ecosystem. So my supply is, is literally endless, and um, I am working on a, a very obscure topic, but one that may may be of some use, um, which is to understand how this particular coprophyllis uh, fungus um, operates so that when we see it in uh, lake cores uh, associated with pollen, which is what you know, Kathy does mainly, it's a lot of pollen work, um, that we can understand what it means. And you know, without going into too much detail, um, it's, it's something that could actually have uh, global uh, significance. If um, if we can find out, we have a, a really um, interesting, unique opportunity here in Yellowstone because you know bison are associated with this uh, fungus, um, and we know a lot about bison when they came, um, where they where they hang out because of the park, and so um, that's something that's sort of the basis of my research is using that unique. Um, lifestyle that the bison have here and making that work for me in interpreting um, the, the fungus 
and where we're finding it or where we're not finding it. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's of interest, but uh, but I but it's been it's been a lot of fun, and um, I've certainly learned a lot, and it's great using the Yellowstone ecosystem as a laboratory. It's the best. How awesome is that? <laughs> uh, well, so we, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, you know, I've, um, there, it's very restricted, um, not just because of park regulations for research. I mean, there's certainly that, that but um, I can only uh, access Lake Core when there's not a cover of snow and ice and when bears aren't using the area and where there, when there's not nesting birds or when the water's low enough to afford a stream with my equipment. So I have very short windows of time and opportunity for me to get in there and get the materials that I need. But once I get them back to the lab, you know, I can work on them all year long. So that's not a problem. Well, that's so great. So, Barbara, your work on climate change and your interest in the climate change uh, situation took you to France and Spain recently. And uh, you had an opportunity to look back on your life in Yellowstone from across the pond. Uh, can you share some of your reflections about your experience? Sure. That was just a, a recent trip, and I was, um, I was so privileged uh, to be able to work with some researchers from the University of Barcelona in um, in, actually, in Andorra, which is a tiny little country that's nestled uh, in the Pyrenees between uh, France and Spain. And um, I, I've always found, I, I love to travel, I, I love to learn and I love to travel. And of course, I, I always think traveling is the best way to learn. Uh, but it, it just does so much good to take yourself out of where you're comfortable and where things are, you know, kind of normal and status quo and see your own life. Uh, from that perspective, and so we we hiked around the Pyrenees, um, gathering data uh, that's part of this ongoing 15-year um, climate study that they're doing there. And you know, I would say, oh wow, you know, this, this looks a lot like the Colorado Rockies, the landscape does, or you know, you just kind of um, there's the, the snow melts. I'm thinking, wow, you know, there's quite a bit of snow left here now. I wonder if there's this much left in Yellowstone, and you know, the different elevations and, and whatnot. But one of the things that I really noticed and just really came away with was that in the course of eight days, climbing around from dawn to dusk, uh, we saw one chamois and two roe deer, and wow. we saw nothing else, nothing else, um, save, let's see, a, a legless lizard, a snake, and a few rodents. Some birds, yes, but, uh, and it was very nice. I, you know, enjoyed seeing them. And, and, and also, you know, judging by the, the excitement that the, uh, the researchers who were from that area had when they, we saw these deer, uh, or the deer and the chamois, they, they were really just ecstatic and everybody stopped what they were doing and, you know, followed them along the hillside and whatnot. And, and it made me realize once I got back to uh, Yellowstone to my home and, you know, on my way to the grocery store, I see a herd of elk sitting on the, the ball field in front of the school or I drive into the park and I see, you know, bison are in the road and, um, oh, there's a, there's a black bear with, with a cub and, oh, an eagle just flew over or an osprey caught a fish behind my house on the river. And I thought, first of all, of course, um, 
Montana is a wonderful place to come home to. Yellowstone, is, uh, the northern edge of Yellowstone is an amazing place to live. I'm very, very fortunate. But it also really brings to light the fact that we have something very, very precious here, very precious, unusual, uh, unique, and it's a, it truly is a treasure. And the more that I can translate that in some way to um, people that I guide, to now my students um, at MSU, I forgot to mention that I'm you know, very fortunate to be able to do a little bit of teaching up there at the university and love having contact um, with the students there. Um, I really feel compelled to try somehow to communicate that to folks, that what we have here is something that a lot of other people uh, in other parts of, of the world do not have, that this, this is something really worth protecting. And um, it's kind of like, I know that, you know, I know that myself, but if I, if I only keep that to myself, I am not doing the world any kind of service or, or this, this um, ecosystem. So it, it really, really brings home to me, and, and this trip in particular, because I was in such a, rem- a remote place, um, and realized that, you know, if there have been humans living in that, um, those areas, those mountains, those ecosystems for so long, they literally have killed everything. They literally have, you know, they're bringing bears back into the Pyrenees, but they have maybe 30 or 40, and they had to actually import male bears because there were no male bears left, and they're trying to bring them back. But there are the challenges that they face are that there are so many people, um, so many communities. There's such heavy human use of that landscape um, that it's really, it's really going to be a challenge. Um, so here, you know, we're, we're, we're not quite that bad. Um, this, this is where it's really worth focusing our efforts to keep our ecosystem intact, to keep it complete like it is here in the Yellowstone ecosystem and how really important that is, um, not just for the ecosystem, but for all of us um, to be able to have it and experience it in the future. Thank you, Barbara. This is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Beat, and we're listening to Barbara Ulrich from Gardner, Montana. Thank you so much.